Welcome listeners, my name is Sahar Bajanian and I'm the founder of Collaborative Social Change and one of many hosts of our Global Peace and Conflict podcast, which is meant to improve our thinking about how to prevent violent conflict more effectively. We also have our digital media producer Dave Horowitz and founding members of CSC, Dr. Marissa Tramontano, Danny Lord, and Nusha Nematzadeh, silently facilitating our discussion today. All of our bios and contact information can be found on Podbean and our website, collaborativesocialchange.org. But let's dive into the meat of this podcast. You are joining us for our first episode in our four-part series that asks, how can violence prevention be more preventative? And today we are seeking to answer this question in relation to interpersonal violence, particularly in the context of child protection. But first, let me provide some context and framing to explain why we would ask such an odd question in the first place. When we talk about violence prevention, what are we actually talking about? It helps if we think about this in two ways. First is to understand violence prevention as a goal, which in the most ideal terms means that we are successfully disallowing human beings from experiencing violence in the first place. The second is to understand violence prevention as a series of activities, methods, and tactics used to prevent people from experiencing violence, and this is where things can get a bit messy, because there's two different ways we can think about this as well. On the one hand, we have preventative methods, where we are anticipating that violence might happen, and we are intentionally taking steps to prevent it from happening. But there are also reactionary methods that still very much fall into the remit of violence prevention practice, where an instance of violence occurs and the way we react to said violence is meant to ensure that that particular type of violence does not happen again. So practice is a lot messier than the concept of violence prevention communicates. And to make matters even more complex, how you define violence is going to also influence what practice looks like. In my own experiences working in diverse fields dedicated to violence prevention, such as social work, conflict management and mediation, transitional justice, peace building, and atrocities prevention, I noticed that even across these areas of practice concerned with addressing different types of violence at divergent levels and across diverse contexts, critical commentators, including myself, problematize that reactionary approaches continue to prevail. And we can do better than this, much better than this. So I've decided to bring together specialists in different areas of work to discuss why they believe reactionary approaches continue to prevail in their fields and to brainstorm a little bit about how we can shift practice so that preventative or anticipatory methods are more prevalent. However, this is not an easy question as it really depends on how you define violence. And that is why I've asked seasoned professionals to first come together and discuss why reactionary trends prevail in their respective areas of work. So the first three episodes, we will hear from specialists working on atrocities prevention, intergroup conflict with a focus on law and policy, and interpersonal violence in the context of child protection. And then in the fourth episode, we will bring all of our guests together to discuss the commonalities across their areas of practice. But first we begin with interpersonal violence, and we are lucky enough to speak with two seasoned professionals in the field of social work. First, we have Tiana Gross joining us from Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan, Canada. She completed her Bachelor of Social Work degree at the University of Regina, and will be referring to her experience working with unhoused people in England, and her experience as a child protection worker with the government of Saskatchewan. 
We also have Lauren Sullivan, who is the program manager for the child protection team in Pinellas County, Florida. She previously served as a forensic interviewer in Suffolk County, Massachusetts for three years, where she interviewed hundreds of victims of sexual and physical abuse, as well as sexual exploitation. She finished her Bachelor of Arts in Sociology at Concordia University in Montreal and a Bachelor of Arts in Philosophy at the University of Victoria, Canada. So let's start. I mean, I, I guess I can throw it over to Tiana to um, just share with us a little bit about what experiences you're drawing from and what are the major prevailing uh, causes that you still see this reactionary approach in your area of work and, and maybe what can we do about them? I love it, Sarah. And of course, I have to take notes because I could talk all day everything about everything and I have a bit of ADHD. Um, so I kept these notes to keep me on track. Um, but definitely, um, I would say they're honestly my two favorite experiences so far, being a practicum student um, at a homeless shelter in England. Um, I, I wish somebody would have told me, Tiana, when you walk through those doors today, you'll never be the same in the way you look at the world. And that's really what happened. And what I really learned from these experiences is that, you know, when we talk about violence, we think of just like the physical violence. You know, we think about people fighting. Uh, we think about war, of course. We think about gun violence. But I really think um, the most important violence for me in my work is that cultural violence and how I work with vulnerable populations. Um, and of course, I love comparing my practicum position to my position as a child um, protection worker because they seem like different experiences, but I see a lot of the commonalities within these experiences. So I guess I'll start with the commonality is, you know, our worldview of what people need and what people need to get better and what these people need. Of course, when we think of homeless people, we think of, of course, they need um, food, water, shelter. Um, and of course, they're in this position due to their own actions. It's a consequence of their own actions. Um, exact same thing for child abuse, right? We think that, oh, my goodness, these parents just need to quit it. Um, and that'll be it. But really, um, we have a bigger, we have bigger messes at stake that we need to clean up. And where we kind of, we kind, we kind of get stuck as a society is in that cultural violence, where we really normalized our violence, and we really started to justify um, the flaws in our system. So when we look at people who are experiencing homelessness and people in the child welfare system, um, again, it goes back to that. It's a consequence of their own action of why are they in this, these positions. Uh, but really, if they were consequences of their own actions, why do we see trends? Why do we see um, such a big need for these social issues? Why do we see the same people um, kind of going through these systems and coming back again? Why do we see um, parents in either system and then their children again in either system and then so forth why do we see that intergenerational trauma because of course we're reacting we're responding to needs we're putting band-aids on things um, we're not looking at these long-term goals we're not looking at why do we have homelessness why do we have um, children who are victims of child abuse even though their parents were in the child welfare system so why do we see all these things because we put band-aids on things, we react, and it reinforces repetition. And when we see repetition, we don't see change. And so really, when I speak of culture of violence, I really want to challenge people on the world 
on their worldviews and what they believe about things. Because we believe that, you know, if people, if you're homeless, we go to this homeless shelter, we'll get it solved. But how do people get homeless? How do they even get there? Our beliefs about who these people are and what they need usually isn't the case. Um, often when we look at people in the homelessness population, how they kind of get stuck is because they find their own community. They find their own sense of belonging. Um, you know, they really struggle navigating our structures. Exact same thing um, in the child protection world. We're struggling in these social systems. Um, and that's, again, another form of violence is in our systems that are supposed to help people that actually reinforces violence. And so it was really interesting because when I walked into that homeless shelter that day, I thought, okay, so I'm going to help people get their housing. I'm going to help them get their food. I'm going to help them get a job. But actually, the most important thing that they really needed um, was validation, was kindness, was somebody to have coffee with. Mm -hmm. Um, really somebody to really just have human connection. And that was so rewarding. The same thing working with the vulnerable population in the child protection sector. What actually people needed was just to be heard. Instead of you telling me what I need, I need a space to tell you what I need. Right. And so again, that comes back from our belief system and how we get stuck in this violence about how we think what people need instead of honoring their autonomy. And that kind of goes into some solutions. So where do we start? We start with our interactions with people. Um, we start, you know, giving people a safe space um, to have autonomy, to question things. It's okay to ask questions. I feel like we kind of get stuck in ruts about doing things. Um, we just do them because we do. And that's how things have always been done. But it's okay to question things, challenge social norms. You know, just because we've always done them doesn't mean it's okay. And, um, you know, as a social worker, we always talk about strengths-based approach. And I don't want to get too technical because I want people to relate to this. But even as a friend, even as a co-worker, uh, maybe even as somebody who is working with vulnerable populations, people already knew, know what they're doing wrong. We all know that. We all need to know what we need to work on, what we need to do. Let's start honoring people for what they're good at. And let's start building on that. And so that's kind of where I want to, I want to keep it simple. And so I just really want people to take away from this that our everyday interactions are actually so important and they can either make it or break it for people. Mm -hmm. You know, especially somebody who is struggling with homelessness or in the child welfare system, you can be the reason that somebody, you know, even brushes their teeth that day because you were kind to them or even goes goes back to that meeting even though it was really scary for them and that's where we need to start is because when we look at things at an international context so we can do things in our everyday actions but countries that do better or communities that do better or neighborhoods that do better is when people come together mm -hmm. and they really have that relationship Thank you, and and like you you touched on something that no one has yet, except I've I've kind of tried to slip it in there <laughs> uh, <laughs> a few times, which it's starting with the people, right? Starting with the agents, starting with the masses, and um, and I, and the the important part about that is that there's there's few a few different threads that I think you highlighted. One is complacency. So there's cultural violence in accepting our social services systems as such that it is what it is, we can't do anything about it. we're trapped. What are you going to do? That kind of, what are you going to do? And then that second thread, which is 
as everyday citizens, as we kind of navigate our everyday, how are we interacting with those that we can tell have been embedded in these systems or that are homeless to link it to your UK experience? And so what are we doing? How are we responding to them? What do we say? How, do, how does our body language look? Um, what do we even, you know, how do we even engage them? How far will we engage them? Or is it just look ahead, pretend you don't see them and keep walking? Like what? So those little micro interactions that I think we often discount how important that is to then, I think, cause um, maybe an individual to abuse a substance or to to marginalize themselves or separate themselves from um, the public and in search of that community that you're talking about that then becomes much more familiar and comfortable. Um, so yeah, you've touched on, um, on quite a bit in that third element, which is um, asking those very same people that have endured this violence what they need, right? Like, what do you want? What do you need? What does that look like? Instead of thinking that because we've been trained, um, because we've gone to school, because we're associated with these very important institutions, so to speak, um, that we, we might know best and that they can't help themselves. They don't know what they need. Um, so I think, yeah, you touched on some very, very important elements there. And then I'll stop there and throw it to, over to Lauren so we can see, um, yeah, what she has to say about all this. Yeah, I think it's interesting because I think what you just highlighted, Sarah, is the they, the first two threads that you sort of touch upon, the complacency and then how we interact with those people. Mm-hmm. And that is a that is a, a cyclical system in and of itself because we see it and then we engage in it and then how we engage in it is mm-hmm. it is and then affects how we see it. So I think those things feed off of one another. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's interesting that you talk, um, Tiana, about the, the reactionary response to kids in the child welfare system. The welfare system is reactive. That is all it is, you know? And I think it's very different because although I am Canadian, I don't have any experience with the Canadian welfare system when, with respect to how it works with child protection and child abuse. Mm-hmm. The American system, though, I mean... There are social workers in every school. There are nurses. Everybody knows that you call a special hotline to report abuse. It's far more um, well-known, and and people are aware of it in a different sense than I would imagine people are in Canada. Just being a kid that grew up in Canada, I didn't know about social work or what social workers did. It just wasn't a thing in my community. And here, it is a thing. And um, I think what's, what's really interesting is when my whole career has been really about kids that are systems involved and what child abuse looks like and how we respond to victims of child abuse. And, and it has a lot to do with what you said, Tiana, and that we think we know what they need and we think we can put these, these kids in boxes and basically say, this is what you need to sort of be successful. Um, But I think we're all missing that, that kids should be able to tell us what they need. Um, You know, I think, I always use this pretty um, corny line when I talk about kids in the system or kids that I experience because the kids I experience are the ones that are actively disclosing um, abuse. So mostly uh, sexual abuse, egregious physical abuse. So the kids that my team sees currently here in Pinellas County are um, the, the law mandates that we see these certain kids because their abuse is so egregious. So it's burns, broken bones, sexual abuse, medical neglect, um, really putting kids in harm's way. Um, and so what's, what's interesting is that we are all just reactive agents to a child coming forward and, and, and being able to share their experience. And I say, my corny saying is that 
these kids are exceptional because they are literally the exception to the rule. You know, most kids don't tell, most kids don't talk. This is not sort of something that kids are able to make meaning of, especially this intimate familial abuse of sexual abuse, because it is far more often someone you know, someone that's earned your trust, someone that has garnered that sense into your life where you feel like you cannot share because if you do, you will lose many intimate aspects of your own life. Um, and so most kids aren't able to talk about that until they're adults. I heard recently that the average age of, of, of adult survivors of child sexual abuse, that when they are able to disclose isn't until they are 52 years old. And so when we see kids in active disclosure in my world, in my work, when they're six, eight, 14, 16, I say these are these kids are exceptional because they are the true exception to the rule. When you kind of look historically back, and I, and I know this exists in Canada, Tiana, um, but I, I, know, I know it better in, in the United States, um, is that about um, 20, maybe 30 years now, no, because we're in 2021, so it's in the 90s, there was this huge issue with um, a daycare provider, and essentially, a, a, I think it was in Los Angeles, and a child came forward and said that Something had happened at the daycare and then the, um, you know, responsible agents in the community, law enforcement, child protective service workers uh, sent out this mass um, letter to homes and said, anybody that has had a kid in this daycare, go and talk to your kid about what could have happened to them. And so we all know little kids that are at daycare age are highly suggestible and can be led down a road and, and you can just implant memories in little kids, right? So then they had hundreds of kids coming forward saying that they had been abused by these daycare providers, which is not true, obviously. I mean, I think that we can all kind of step back and recognize that the ability for that to have happened and gone unnoticed for lengths of time is, is very unlikely. But what this led was to the development of things called the Child Advocacy Center. And the Child Advocacy Center is, is purely a reactive response to how do we deal with child victims of abuse uh, knowing that we have many uh, community partners that need to speak to the child, depending upon what their role is in understanding the child's experience of abuse. Um, and so when I think about the reactionary model in my, in my world, I deal with intimate violence, familial violence. Um, it's, that's the biggest sort of uh, understanding I can kind of come forth with. And when we talk about preventative abuse, I know Sarah knows this about me, is that how do you prevent child abuse? Like, especially when you're thinking about child sexual abuse, you know, where do you even begin? Because is the prevention in speaking to children so that they're aware of the grooming that takes place before the abuse? Or is the prevention, do we flip it on its head and look at the people that are the, that the perpetrators of the abuse? I mean, I think that when you look at preventative factors and how you're kind of, kind of going to respond in a way that feels um, just not yucky. I know for like lack of a better term, like how do you have, like how do you have a conversation with little kids, you know, that doesn't scare them because that's what we're trying to figure out. Like how do you talk to a four year old about these things, which doesn't completely throw them off their rocker and think that everyone in the in the world is a boogeyman, you know? And so 
there's this understanding of this very fine line between prevention and outright instilling fear in our child and our children's, you know, and, and how do we walk that line? And I know Marissa, you're a mom and, you know, I don't know about anyone else on the panel that's a parent, but and I'm not, I just have dogs, but, and a pig, but I think when you talk to your kids about safety and how to keep their bodies safe, it's this understanding that you want to share with them a piece of knowledge that will allow them to have the understanding to recognize when things are not okay, but you're not scaring the bejesus out of them. And I think that that is that line we toe as adults, knowing the horrors of the world and what bad people can do. And Tiana, and I'm sure in your world, when you're working in the child protective investigative world and for this for the province, I almost called it the state, I'm sorry, for the province, how do you kind of like work at understanding and working with families? And and then just to kind of throw it in there because that it really is the trend that we see in, in my field is that it's mostly there's a lot of sibling abuse. And so when you look at a family that's is working with sibling abuse where one child has perpetrated upon the other child and you're the caregiver of those children, your whole, your whole family's status has been fractured because you now have to keep one child safe from the legal system and what punitive action could occur from their actions. And then you also have to demonstrate to that other child that you're supportive and protective and you're going to ensure their safety from here on out. And it's this dynamic that nobody really has a handle on, to be completely honest. It is it is a trend that we are seeing that we don't know how to handle. And um, I'm sure, Tiana, you're seeing it up there because I don't think it's, it's you know, I don't think we're the only lucky one that get to see these things down in the United States, but I think it's it's the the trend and the pattern that I see that I don't think that we have a good response to, uh, preventative or otherwise. I don't think that we have any kind of response to it that feels appropriate and weighted in understanding what this fracture will mean for a family. And so again, that comes back to challenging our social norms. It's okay to question things. And how do we give children a safe place? to do that because they're not taught that in school. We're not taught that in our culture. And so I really love, Lauren, that you say that we're actually kind of in a mess and where do we start? And so my brain always goes to, we can do such simple things about the, our interactions with people and about our worldview, and it can actually make such a big difference. And just the way we're teaching people how to behave and how do people bring back their autonomy, right? How do we empower these kids that you are just a kid um, so you need to listen versus, no, you're just a kid. Speak your mind. Tell me what you think. It's okay to question things. Um, and if you don't like something, it's okay to say no. Where did we lose that? Mm -hmm. I, I think you're both kind of mentioning threads that all come back to the same thing, which is, whereas you might see a lot of people point to policy reform and legal reform and kind of institutional reform, you guys are pointing to agents, right? So you have Tiana that's pointing to the masses and how we interact and that's where change starts and how we socialize um, each other and our children. And then you have Lauren that's talking about, well, on the back end of it, um, or sorry, on the front end of it, sorry, when, when can a child actually be groomed to or taught how to call these things out and what to look for and, you know, without you maybe traumatizing them in that process <laughs> and maybe inflicting some harm ourselves. Um, and I think, on, and Tiana brought this up as well, is on the back end of it, 
is how can the child be a part of developing the strategy to actually address the, the violence that they've experienced. So you're all coming back to this idea of putting the agent first, right? Whether it's uh, the agents in the masses or it's the agent um, being that child or that youth that actually um, endured the violence themselves. And I'm wondering, like, why do you think that we're so focused on institution and policy and law and guidelines and not agents in your areas of work, if you can chime in on that? I was only going to say, I think it's difficult. I think the biggest hurdle we face sort of as a as a community is that there is this idea that kids make stuff up. And so I think that it's very hard for what we, and I'm using my air quotes, the adults of the world <laughs> to really kind of sit back and say, if these are the victims of the abuse and the violence, we should be listening to them and having them point us in the direction and what we can do to fix it. But then it's sort of a catch 22 because are we going to listen to kids at what age? Where do we cut it off? And are kids telling us the truth? And I think one of the biggest hurdles that I've, I've faced is that oftentimes people are like, well, they have a history of lying. And I think um, if you particularly take out the kids that are far more vulnerable and susceptible to abuse are the ones that are already systems involved. So they're already been, they've already experienced removals from home. They might not have a strong specific caregiver in their life. They might have been in, in the foster care system or in institutionalized systems, whether that be residential or psychiatric in nature. And once a child has that type of history behind themselves, they somehow in doing so become less validated by the adults in their lives. So there seems to be this under this sort of preconceived notion that they're making this up. They have a history of lying. And so there's less um, autonomy placed on the child and this and less sort of this ability to really hear them for what their story is and how they've gotten to this place um because there's this understanding that they sort of have fallen upon this on themselves for whatever reason which is a big issue when we look at children that are being um exploited and i think one of the big changes in that environment and i don't know if you see this tiana up in saskatchewan but they um we've had to down here in the united states look at um changing those laws so that it's understood that child victims are not prostitutes Children that are being exploited should not be um, prosecuted and penalized as um, sex workers or prostitutes. So these are victims um, and that the caregiver is their pimp. And so we've had to really address policies and procedures in that sense of how we actually work with these victims, um, which was a huge turn, I think, legislatively for a lot of people down here to recognize that. And I think it was very difficult for law enforcement. Um, but I also think that they have to sort of un move with the times, because when we look at children that are being sexually exploited, they're not being put out on the street anymore. They're being listed on Backpage and Craigslist. And these are kids that are being pimped out and we don't physically see them. They're being hidden from us. And so it's hard to kind of have this um, empathy for these victims that are, are faceless and nameless because they've, they've been runaways, they've been homeless, they've been institutionalized and thrown in the system and then spit back out. And this is the only place that they find comfort or belonging. But it's it's all due to 
the the inability of the system to really kind of grasp them and catch them in a way that feels supportive and validating at the time that they've interacted with us initially. And I think I'm sure Tiana has repeaters that she sees. I think my biggest the part that was so affecting, um, impactful for me was when I would see the same, I, you know, my, my repeater of, that would just keep coming back because they've just continued to be victimized because they don't understand any other way of life. Um, and, and a lot of kids are not even able to, to describe themselves as victims. Um, and that then again turns into that intimate violence and that cycle of abuse when it comes to who your abuser is and what you believe is abuse or not, or what you think is love. Um, and so there's many different layers to all of this, but um, I think I went a little off tangent. I could talk about this for days. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the point, right? That's the point. And, and there's a good reason that you can keep going is because of it is a system. And it just yeah. keeps, you know, you just make, keep making linkages to other things. Well, it's all, it's all this horrible web of crap when we look mm -hmm. at kids because, mm -hmm. you know, you even have little kids. So some of the, the research says that, you know, they can't, they can't give a, a causation effect, but they're able to say that there's some level of correlation for children that have been in a DV home, so a domestic violence home, that they then act out sexually with their peers. And they're trying to exert control and power over their lives and their bodies by exerting it onto someone else because they live in this home structure that's so chaotic and violent. And so it's a web of all of this stuff that just, it like layers upon layers upon layers. And when you take these kids and you kind of pull back all the systems that have been involved, all the people that have been in and out of their lives, whether they're going to school every day, they've got sports, they've got church, they've got choir, they've got all these different aspects of people that are involved, but then we don't even know all the other stuff, you know, mm -hmm. and it's an interconnected web of abuse. And the intimate abuse, I think, is the hardest one to crack, in my opinion, but it's also because I work in this field, because it, there's so many emotions tied to it. I mean, there's so much shame, there's so much guilt, there's so much confusion. Um, and I think, you know, we see that these factors all sort of tie together. So we've got a kid that comes from a house where there's violence between their caregivers and then they go out and they're with friends and then they're acting out sexually and perpetrating on other kids. And then that kid will end up acting out in a different environment in a different way. It is a horrible domino effect of this web of just abuse and violence and our only response currently, it feels, is reactionary because it doesn't, there's no good way and, and I think yet to have anyone figure out how do we prevent this level of intimate familial violence with child victims? I'll throw this question back to you guys. I mean, you've worked for government institutions and you've worked for a lot of organizations and are these the best institutions to be doing social work as you know it, or is it more cultural institutions and should it be elders in a community? Should it be related to, kind of the system that that child is already embedded in and should that intervention come from there and is it already happening and and um maybe some lessons learned from that either way will be it good or bad um i think would be really interesting to find out maybe tiana we'll start with you if you don't mind um well i gotta say that um especially for the child welfare system in saskatchewan like where do you start 
for change right. because the whole thing I would like to rebuild myself and I, I don't want to just slander it and I want to see the system is doing the best it can with what it's got yeah. um, and I really think there's a lot of work to do which is exciting because it's exciting when change happens um, but I guess definitely where where does it start what piece do we start with because the system as a whole right now it's not working really for anybody I would say it's not super working for the safety of the kids. It's not super working for the families who continuously to come back. Just like Lauren said, we see some repeaters coming back into the system. And again, it's not really working for workers in the system. And that's a huge issue because we see high turnover rates, high burnout rates, no consistency. The kids, again, are seeing worker, worker and worker. Um, and not only because there's so much work to do within the system, we're not really seeing actually many foster parents anymore. And so really, in Saskatchewan, I would say the system as a whole is no longer working as a whole. And, and who is it working for? Because then it leads to all these direct issues of, um, I love your ideas, Sarah. Like, who, who should be intervening? Who should be working with the kids? And I think where we have to start is, yeah, what is best for the kids in these families? Because it's none of these things. It's none of... Um, what the system, system is currently doing. It's not having a new worker every week. It's not having any consistencies. It's not having resources in your own community. It's not having foster parents. Um, I drove kids all over Saskatchewan to be placed in care, which was terrible because for them it was like driving to China. Um, but the benefits I... I can see is um, Saskatchewan is really having a movement, though, um, of really including more Indigenous communities and having them more jurisdiction um, over their their families. So that's a huge bonus. And I think that's really a great place to start is to see more of that inclusion from the Indigenous cultures and really learning from them. Now the time that they have a voice um, and they've witnessed so much of this for so long. Not only have they witnessed it, um, they've really been victims of the child welfare for system for so long. And so when we switch our approach to allowing our Indigenous communities to really have some power and autonomy, it's really an exciting time for us to learn from them and kind of ask them as a victim and as somebody who is a service um, providing the service, now you're working in the system, from that experience, what do you feel is best, especially for your own community? And I think that's a great place to start is for people who have these lived experiences, because something that I've learned, again, kind of going back to my, even working with those who are homeless and working in the child protection system, we have all, all these ideas of what people need what they need um, and how it looks and how we're going to get there. But actually, it's just switching that approach. Yeah, I mean, I think Tiana hits on some great points. I think one of the biggest issues we see just as a community of people that are involved in child welfare is that it is it is such a high burnout rate. I mean, I think that as people that are involved in this line of work, it's because we care about the kids, right? But then there's all, there's almost it gets to a it's a tipping point of how much can you handle on your for your own personal well being, your own mental health, your own sanity. How much can you take before it has its sort of um, the output is too great on your sort of your own personal life and and well being? Um, I think that's a huge problem. I think we see it here in the United States states all over the place. I think in my in my county currently it's a big issue because the Florida does things all sorts of ways. I mean, I, you know, we could talk about that on a different podcast, but I think what's important is that um 
there, there's a high, high turnover rate on our child protective investigative division. Um, and so those people come and go and honestly, they don't last more than two years. And so you think of that, like the constant turnover of faces of these kids, right? Like who's the person that I'm seeing? How new are they? You know, are they novices in this or is this somebody that really understands what's going through and has kind of seen it all? Um, I think the other thing that you kind of made me think about, Tiana, when you were talking was that, you know, I think Sarah brings up this point. Are, are we the right who are the right agents involved or should there be a different way that we're kind of addressing this problem? And when you said that, Sarah, the first thing I thought of was, oh, the church. But look at what happened in Boston, right? Like, because we often have this understanding that our community level um, providers could be more helpful because they understand the community on a community level, right? Mm -hmm. And I agree with that for a number of different reasons. But then when we think about where we employ trust, Mm -hmm. where do we, you know, turn around and feel like we can walk in and that we are, it is a safe place and have those places already sort of um, been taken away from us because they've been mired in this sense of you're not trusted anymore. You know, this was someone that I could go to and then they've took, they've themselves taken advantage of my vulnerability. Um, and then it's sort of, when we think about it, Tiana, whenever we think about removing kids from homes, you know, it's, it's, I know we always think that, um, there's two, there's two sort of like veins you could go down. Like, of course, take the kid out of an unsafe environment. Of course, like it makes, it seems to be very sort of, uh, practical in, in the sense. But then when you think about what life is like for that kid, you know, mm-hmm. this, whole little world and you just snatched them out whether it's it's a a most horrific there's no running water there's nothing there's violence there's abuse that's all they know and so you're asking them to put faith in this strange person that's going to drive them in a car to god knows where to be with god knows who and that's terrifying for our children so because we often are taking the and you think about it in school right when you, when someone's in trouble, you take the problem out of the equation, right? And so that's how we're dealing with kids in welfare systems is that rather than removing the actual issue, such as the abusive parent or caregiver, we're taking the victim and uprooting them. And it sort of is like, they've had this different response in schools. I, I worked in a, um, in a residential facility that had a therapeutic day school. And oftentimes when a kid is having a, an, an explosive event, they let the child having the explosive event stay in the room and then get all the other kids out, right? Take that. They can go to safety, let that kid sort of have that, that time. And so it's sort of a different way. It's, it's, it's turning it on its head and a little inversion in terms of how are we responding to these children, but why are we always trying to take the problem out. And then when we think about who's the problem, it is the kid that said something, the kid that's disclosed abuse. All of a sudden you've had, you've been able to come forward and share your most intimate secrets with somebody. And then the next thing you know, the strange person's at your house and snatching you up out of your house to take you to someone else's house or a residential facility. And and your world has been turned upside down. And oftentimes in abuse, we see kids recant rather quickly because they just want to go back to whatever their sense of normalcy was, whether you or I think it's not okay and not normal, 
they are terrified and they want to go back because that's what they know is that's what they know, right? Like that's it. That's the bottom line. That's what they know. That's what they're familiar with. And one of the things I think about Sarah is when we think about the um, commercial sexual exploitation of children is there was this group in Boston. They're fantastic. They're still there. It's called my life, my choice. And they are a survivor led group um, for, for child victims of exploitation. And so they have mentors that have already been able to come out of an exploitative life and then come and work with the younger generation and be able to share experiences in, in, in such a way that is like, oh yeah, you get it. You know, you know, you're not this person over here that went to school and says that they know you're someone that's lived in my shoes. You've lived my life. So I can respect your opinion about it or your advice a little bit differently. That has had, um, a huge gains in that world in terms of bringing attention to uh, sexual exploitation. So I think you're, you're sort of hitting on something that we need to look at when it comes to other victims groups is that is there survivor led groups that could be the community interventionists when it talk when we talk to these kids because they've walked the walk they've been there you know and I, I wonder if that is where we are missing um, that level of understanding especially when it comes to child victims who are able to disclose well they're still a child Absolutely. I mean, you reminded me, actually, you made so many good points, but I'll pick up on the latter one. Um, when I was working with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada, gathering statements of um, survivors and intergenerational survivors of Indian residential schools here in Canada, um, the health support workers that have to be standing by and, and those that would provide that psychosocial support as somebody's providing their statement were predominantly survivors themselves. And not having that, I don't know if I could be uh, comfortable doing that job. You know, the, the underlying point, I guess, we're trying to make is just we need to think of the role of survivors themselves. And I think it might be even in the terminology, because I hear throughout our conversation, you guys have referred to children as victims, but then others as survivors. And I don't know if it's jargon in your fields or if we think of children as helpless. And, and if, if we just assume that, and, and with that comes like a bit of uh, robbing them of, of, of a bit of that autonomy and agency that we know they have, but is it um, in what we call them and how, and I guess the connotations attached to that, is it just what, how we think of children versus different kinds of survivors? Um, and, and I don't know, maybe it's just semantics, maybe it doesn't really matter. Um, I, I think you're I think you're hitting on it a thousand percent. I think that the the language and how we're labeling, you know, mm. it comes down to how are we labeling and how are we kind of um, understanding roles is huge. And and the residential facility I was in in Massachusetts before I moved to Florida, we um, specifically worked with. Um, children, I mean, like you know, young adults um, under the age of 18 that had problematic sexualized behaviors. Mm -hmm. And now if you went to a different facility, they would call them sex offenders. You went to another place, they would call them juvenile sex offenders wow. or pedophiles or rapists. And I think we were very clear that our language was that these are children that have developed problematic sexualized behaviors and that we're able to talk about it in a way where you something has happened and that you sort of just 
not had a good grasp on how we interact in this sort of intimate way with other kids. So it was very solutions focused and even with the language, which I think is huge. I think, unfortunately, when we work in sort of this and especially in my field, I don't know, Tiana, if you feel the same way, but then when it's sort of child welfare, child protective service agencies, we, we're always, it's the victim, it's the child victim. It's the, and then we have to identify and label because we have our own little genogram that we're doing when we, there's the, there's the alleged perpetrator, who's the caregiver, who's the victim, who's the other child, like there, we have to label to identify, to report out because we share um, communication with law enforcement, state attorney's office, you know, it's, 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 it's that sharing the same, and when we get to language, I mean, I, in Florida, I told you, Florida's a little weird. They, ha, they call moms live in non-maritable boyfriend a paramour or vice versa. So if dad had a live-in girlfriend, they call them a paramour. I said, what is this, Biblic times? Like, I don't know what these these terms for people like well i need to know the difference if it's stepdad or if it's dad or and i'm like but but why right like what why what is the point of this and then it all comes down to having um language labeled correctly because if and when if it's a criminal investigation and it goes to court they're using identifiers instead of people's actual proper names. Mm. And so they could be talking about the wrong person. And so it's sort of, is sort of, it's very important. The language that we use has such an important impact and effect on what could come later that we really are, I think, doing a disservice because we do talk about, even in language when it comes to children, uh, victims of sex, sexual exploitation, is that they're not prostitutes, right? Like, We've changed the language and how we're addressing because the language has an undercurrent and a tone that comes with it. And when Tiana talks about folks that are homeless and that it's sort of like, well, they've, they've done this to themselves. It's, you know, oh, they're runaways because they, you know, from whatever they decided they wanted to live on the street. And it's sort of putting the onus back on them rather than saying what sort of what happened in your life that got you to this place? Like what happened to you? And when we talk in an interview space for with child um, victims of abuse, and we're doing a forensically sound interview to understand what actually happened, it's it's trained into us that when we speak about a child having to do a sexual act to another person, it's not what did you do to him or to her? It's what did they make you do to him or to her? Because we want language is so powerful in how we are reflecting and feeling about whatever these acts are. Mm -hmm. And so I think you're, I think you're, you hit on something that I think just opened up another bag of worms for all of us. But I think the language is so powerful. Um, And we don't, I don't think that we have a good handle on how we're describing children because you're right victims implies helpless and 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 needing saving right and and how do we swoop in as the 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 workers and the and the other people that are in these these fields to come in and help you even though some kids are like i take it all back yeah. <laughs> yeah, leave yeah. me alone yeah yeah leave me alone leave me and alone. i can't yeah. tell you how many times i've heard kids say that to me mm-hmm. because they dip their toe in the water and they shared a little bit about what goes on and then they immediately regretted it because our response is often too scary or scarier than what they're already dealing with and they already can expect and understand how to respond to. 
And it almost like as if they get with that, you know, the language that you're talking about, if they do share and they get sucked into the system as a particular identity category, and then they're kind of feed fed into that system. And then uh, as you were mentioning, both of you, um, the system kind of contributes to repeats, whether it's repeat, repeat victimization or repeat offenders. Um, it kind of perpetuates that. So it, it's interesting, like if you were to allow a child to say, just leave me alone and back out and not be engaged by the system, maybe that wouldn't happen to them again. Um, and, and then on the other side of it is like, okay, can you, can you just ignore that? And given all the protocols in place and stuff like that, and the obligations you have as a child protection worker. And I think the word protection has a lot of baggage as well, right? Like the word protect, when you talk about protect, you think that that person doesn't have the capacity to protect themselves. So you're coming in to do it for them as well. I think that has a, a little bit of baggage too, doesn't it? How about you, Tiana? What do you think? Um, totally, 100%. Like, especially going back to that language of um, survivor versus victim. And um, again, like the theme I talked about, how we perceive what people need to get better. When we work with kids in the child welfare system, and we do same language, Lauren, about how um, in the investigation process, definitely, who are the victims? Who are the perpetrators? Mm -hmm. um, same same system, different location, a lot of commonalities. So that's really interesting. And then it's interesting when people think, oh, kids have experienced this. They must need this, this, and this. They must need years of therapy. They must need. And again, we don't really honor um, kids what they need. Again, we kind of tell them what to do, how to do it. Um, and, you know, a lot of kids are super resilient. You know, they're really able to overcome a lot of these obstacles. And um, it's really interesting. Like, what happens if we do start viewing kids as survivors? I wonder how they would respond to that. Because in a lot of the work I do as a social worker, um, we teach, we get taught, we teach other people about labeling children is so powerful because they internalize that. So if they constantly get told, I am bad or I am good, they will live up to that label, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And so that's why language is so powerful. And when we're working with our um vulnerable population. The other end of it, I think that we haven't touched on, and maybe this could be kind of the final theme, uh, unless you guys have something you want to touch on too, um, is that there, all of this has to be resourced. And this is kind of a similar pattern across all our discussions, right? You have to resource these programs, these ministries, these uh, institutions. And when you think about the priorities that are being set, uh, whether it's through legislation or um, just general strategic programming over, you know, five, 10 years that we see a lot of the time in, in, in ministries, is it um, that we need to make some kind of a shift in what the priority areas are in terms of providing services instead of being reactionary and kind of just responding to and sucking them into that uh, the, that status quo system um, is it that we can encourage that you know um, maybe you invest more into a community where those survivors of violence have the platform and the resources to support other survivors of violence in a completely different way than we've seen it thus far um, and like more resources go to that. Or if a child were to engage the system to report something or someone on their behalf reports something, 
um, instead of necessarily having to be fed into that system, uh, is it okay to refer to an alternative one, whatever that looks like? And I think Tiana already talked about this um, as well with the jurisdiction um, given to indigenous communities and their respective approaches to um, upholding the sacredness of a child. And so I, I, I guess I throw it back to you just with this resource question and like, how much of influence does that have and can we do something about it as as everyday people everyday citizens i think where i would like to shift our thinking and shift the intervention um i think there's so many areas we could really intervene and make things a little bit differently where i'd really like to shift people's thinking is that we really intervene when the abuse has happened and not only do we intervene when the abuse has happened there's always criteria if it meets this criteria okay. um it's the exact same thing when we look at working with those who are homeless. Once you are homeless, you qualify for all of the things. Not if you are at risk of being homeless or if this nobody intervenes right at some um, preventative approach. Um, you know, so we, we really respond once it has happened and it must meet a criteria. And so working with families in the child welfare system as well, often by the time sometimes I work with families, there was report, a report, a report, and nothing was actually screened in because it didn't meet the so-and-so criteria. And yeah. by the time you're intervening, it's like, oh my goodness, what would it look like if we would have intervened right when we were getting Wait, those reports? Really? And now it's like, now we're just putting out a way bigger fire. Um, and so what if we switched our intervention approach? Because we know that violence doesn't happen overnight. We know that people don't become homeless overnight. We know abuse doesn't happen overnight. Um, you know, especially if you look at intimate partner violence. Um, if you really look at that theme and that circle, the violence escalates. So what would it look like if we had more interventions um, at those early stages? Or, you know, like, what if we more looked at, like, how does this abuse happen? Because nobody wakes up one day and is like, I want this for my life. Or nobody wakes up one day and says, I want to be homeless. Mm -hmm. And so, and, you know, people end up there. So where I really like to see the intervention is between that part of not having the issue um, and in between intervening before you kind of meet that criteria. You nailed it, Tiana, because I think that's what we've tried to do as a society is operationalize mm -hmm. something that can't be operationalized, right? Like we have decided that we're going to set these criteria for when in which a, a, someone intervenes, when, how, where did we develop that? I know like, so even just um, sort of looking at comparing and contrasting the child welfare system from Massachusetts here to Florida is very different and how they've sort of approached it. Um, and even who the who the people are that are filling these roles, like Tiana, I could probably make your mind explode right now by telling you that there are child protective investigators here in Pinellas County do not have to have a social work background. <laughs> Line, oh, wow. they're, yeah. and they're actually employed by the sheriff's department and they wear a windbreaker that has a star emblem and there are people with guns and so think about even just that alone how mm -hmm. that child is going to interpret especially when we're in a society with so much um kind of coming out about police violence and when we look at our communities that are you know 
in more vulnerable that there these kids are raised in communities that do not trust the police we can't trust them because we've seen things that are not appropriate and then all of a sudden you've talked about something that happens at home and here comes someone with a gun and a badge and that's supposed to be the person that's going to help you i don't think so not if i'm that kid and so i think when we look at how there's so many variables that affect what happens in a home right like if we just take the home and look at one one sort of like two parent, 2.5 kids and a golden retriever, what happens in that home? And then we try to say, okay, but if this, this, and this happens, this will be the response. But if this, this, and this happens, this will be the response. And I think that's where we failed our community is that we have tried to operationalize the gray area and it's gray area for a reason. And we can see that these kids are interconnected and it's a web of abuse and it's a web of neglect, how we're trying to then put labels on it and say that, you know, this one will get services because this happened doesn't make any sense when you're in that, when you're in it. And I can see, I can, like, I know exactly what Tiana's talking about. Like there are checkboxes. There are literal, there are literal checkboxes. And it is, that is what our system is yeah. based on. Like you have to do this and then you can move on to the next thing where rather than having it be based on whatever this family's need is. And I thousand, I agree with you, Chiana, about like, you know, there's been report after report after report. So people are acknowledging that something isn't okay, but it's not enough for someone to get involved. So at what point do we determine it's enough? Well, it's when something really bad's happened. And that in, that in and of itself is our reactionary process to dealing with child victims and, and, home, and home violence, right? It's because we have to wait to get involved. We have to wait. And like, but people are noticing that something isn't right here and people are drawing attention to it. And we're saying, not yet, not yet, not yet, not our problem. Someone else will deal with it. Get them a mentor, get them this. It's like, but no, what if we turn it on its head and say, oh, someone's saying something isn't right. Let's pay attention to that. Let's go meet that family. Let's see where there is a gap that we can help provide and fill in a service that would be actually helpful rather than saying we can't help until it's too late. Mm-hmm. It's like we allow for violence to happen. We really do within these systems. You nailed it, Lauren. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We have to wait until something bad has happened before people can be involved. I think Massachusetts has a great um, piece for their uh, Department of Children and, and Families is that they have to be social workers. They passed, they passed this law that they had to, anyone that worked in that field had to have a license, no matter, like if they even had an associate's degree, a bachelor's or master's, they had to be licensed dependent upon their level of degree, which was huge because they're showing that we want people that understand this world. And then on top of that, if you're a family and you have a child that just, you need help, right? Like you're going to people and saying, I need help because X, Y, and Z is going on with my child. Massachusetts has a system to help to get you help. Like you can go in and they, I asked if there's something similar in here in Florida. Like, no, <laughs> and they all looked at me like I had three heads. Why would we do this? Yeah. <laughs> You're yeah. talking about a Republican state that everything is privatized. What do you mean there are dollars that we're going to spend on a kid that no, 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 we don't yeah. do that. I'm like, yeah. interesting. Okay. So what do we do with those kids? What happens with those families where there's someone calling out for help and we're saying, no, not yet. No, not yet. They have to do something very bad for us to sort of respond and, and react. And that's why the whole welfare system is based in 
reactionary responses and behaviors. Absolutely. And that, and I think what's the, that's one of the reasons I'm really excited about the Aboriginal Policy and Practice Framework in British Columbia that the Ministry of Children and Family Development is implementing right now, which is it's really looking at those preventative methods and it's doing it from a cultural perspective. Um, and you can definitely look that up if you want more info on that. I won't digress. But I overall just wanted to kind of just thank you both for... Um, your contributions, if there's any final thoughts you want to throw out there. Um, basically, we're just going to take some of the major themes and the, the things I'm thinking of right now is, you know, thinking of the person that endured the violence as an agent. We don't do this enough. Um, the timing of response, which is a huge issue across the board in all our discussions. Um, who should intervene? How do you justify that intervention? Um, and and what does that intervention look like? What are you actually responding to, right? Do you have to wait for the most egregious, most morally shocking things to happen for us to feel like, okay, now's the time. Uh, we ticked all those boxes. Um, so yeah, just thank you to you both. I, I, um, I'll throw it to you guys if you have any last minute comments. Um, and if not, we can wrap it up. Tiana? Last minute thoughts? No, I just want to say thank you, Sarah, for having oh, me. Right. And thank you, yeah. Brian. It was really awesome to hear somebody else in the same field working in the same system and hearing some commonalities, but also differences. So mm -hmm. that's really interesting. Um, and we can always learn from each other. And I wish that we would do this more often is hear different people's perspective in the same field and what we're kind of doing. Because um, really coming together and getting different ideas, that's really awesome to hear and how we can make things better because there's always room to grow. Lauren, yeah, you're I, good. You know, I, I just agree. I, I think mm. um, I think I think you both are, are on to something. I think it's amazing, Sarah, that you and your team and your panel have put this together, because I think it is like I know we've talked personally about the ways in which systems sort of from the micro to the macro and to then the, you know, international kind of field in which we look at violence and, you know, we can look at it on such a person to person basis and then also into this wider systems of response. Um, but then how do we kind of use other uh, methods and procedures to kind of address things that might be more helpful or, or are we, what we, what we're doing isn't helpful. And so how do we need to kind of reevaluate our, our actions and our behaviors when we're addressing a really vulnerable population? So, um, this, this has been lovely and I appreciate being able to sort of, you know, get, sink my teeth into this stuff and talk to another uh, social worker who works in this field and knows what this is like. And um, thank you for facilitating this. And it's so lovely to meet your, your team and your panel and, and have this awesome opportunity to have this discussion. So thank you. Yeah, thank you both. And, and we will have more discussions ahead. Uh, next week, you're joining us um, and the other panelists in this series for an inclusive group discussion on some common themes. And then um, we can definitely host you again for future discussion on some of the issues you've raised here in much more detail. I know we covered a lot of ideas. So just thank you to you guys and all of our listeners as well for joining us. We hope to have you tune into Global Peace and Conflict again soon. Cheers. Thank you.